0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation.
1: From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Joanne Freeman.
2: I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Brian Bellow. And I'm Nathan Connolly. The winter holiday season is one of the biggest book-buying times of the year, it's also the time when Ed, Nathan, Joanne, and I get emails from colleagues and friends asking us for recommendations.
1: So today, we're devoting the whole show to talking about the history books and more that we recommend as gifts for your loved ones or even for yourself.
0: Throughout the show, Brian, Ed, Joanne, and I will share our recommendations. Our guests, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin and graphic novelist Nate Powell, will give us their picks, too. And all the books and such that we mention in today's show will be on our website, BackstoryRadio.org.
3: Okay, Ed, what do you recommend we read this winter? Well, I want to be honest with people. I kind of colored outside the lines by the time we get to my third recommendation, (laughs) and I'm just hoping I'll get partial credit. But let me begin with the two that do fit the assignment. My first book is, in fact, a book, albeit one with lots of photographs in it, photographs taken by Andrew Lichtenstein with essays coordinated by his brother, Alex Lichtenstein, who's editor of the American Historical Review. And so I love it because you have this medium that we don't usually think of as history, contemporary photographs, and they're beautiful black-and-white grayscale photographs in which uh, historians are telling us what this historic marker really means, or why there is no marker here. And so I found it just to be a remarkable evocation of the historical Hmm. landscape that surrounds us everywhere we go. You know, one thing that historians are trained to do is to see ghosts, (laughs) you know, to see people around us that other people don't see, to remember, oh, Right where we're standing now, something else happened. This book helps us see that in a way that no other book I've ever read has. Mm -hmm. The second book I want to recommend is of the most familiar genre of all, a biography. Uh. And it's perhaps of the most familiar personage for a biography in American history, none other than Abraham Lincoln. Just what we needed,
2: another Lincoln biography. (laughs) You would
3: think that's a fair initial response, Brian, that just makes my recommendation all the more precious, because uh, it's written by William Freeling, who's a longtime, just really original, bold historian of 19th century America. And he decided that, you know, we know Lincoln pretty well in the White House. We know what he did, like you see in the movie of Lincoln. But how did he get there? And really, what was the road like to get there? And it turns out that At every juncture, he was met with defeat and frustration.
4: Upon finding his son stretched out beneath a tree, reciting his latest volume as if in blab school, the illiterate father would rage about wasted time and lazy offspring. The lad would pick up the axe, mutter, if at all, beneath his breath, and search for another few minutes to filch from grunt labor. Only during an occasional month did his father allow Abraham to attend Indiana Blab schools. I ain't got no education, Tom later explained, but I get along far better than if I had.
3: This is one of the things that helps us understand that he was, in fact, self-made, but he also would not have reached what he did had he not had other people pushing from behind. So I thought, you know, I'd read everything I ever wanted to read about Abraham Lincoln, frankly, but I picked up this book because I knew Bill Freeling and I started reading it and I couldn't believe just how fresh and new every part of the story was. So I like this because it's a way to remind ourselves that even though we think a topic has been done, even the most familiar, most written about subject in American history can be done again in ways that let us see it again. The third thing I want to talk about is where I'm going to get in trouble because I use my three precious choices to select a video game of all things. Yes,
0: I love Ed Ayers. Uh, Fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I'm
3: bold. And it's called Red Dead Redemption 2. I don't know if you have a long enough attention span to listen to this or not, Brian, but it's the most profitable entertainment product ever created. Wow. More than any film ever made and grossed over $700 million its first three days. Oh, my God! I was in Europe, actually, uh, a month or so ago giving a lecture, and I was on a train, and suddenly I saw this red newspaper... with an image of this guy from the Old West of the United States <laughs> peering at me and I'm in Belgium on this train. I'm going, what is this? And it says Red Dead Redemption 2 and apparently I missed Red Dead Redemption 1 because, <laughs> because this was news to me. Then I, I read articles in the New Yorker and the New York Times. It said this costs billion dollars to make. 2,000 hmm. pages of script. You can talk to every character in the story and those characters include non-stereotypical game roles like native americans mm. and women wow and they all have their own histories so i thought that was just incredible and it evokes the landscape of photorealism all the different kinds of landscapes that we know and so for no other reason than this is a new imagining of the past uh, and a capacious vision of the past um, and translating it into forms which people might not otherwise come across the past i put it <laughs> on my list As you'll hear later in the show, it turns out that it's somewhat of a complicated gift choice, if you choose to make it, and somewhat of a complicated intervention in the way that we imagine American history, including the Old West. So... I'm not going to take it off my list because I do think it's a breakthrough in the way that we're imagining the past and reminds us that we can imagine the past through all kinds of media, not just a book.
0: Well, Ed, I got to tell you, I didn't think I could be more impressed with you, but here I am absolutely in love with your selection. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, thanks very much. Just
3: don't watch me play the game is all I can say.
1: I love that. I love that, Ed. As well as sharing our own favorite reads this week, we've also invited other writers to share their picks of the best books out there. Earlier this year, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joined us on Backstory to discuss the career of, again, Abraham Lincoln, but this time the lawyer. Mm. While she was here, she gave us her
5: three recommendations for holiday reads. Well, I think, you know, in the most recent years, I would identify Chernow's Hamilton, Mainly because it gave birth to a a one-of-a-kind dazzling musical, which I saw not too long ago, that brought history to life for people of all ages. And to see young people being able to memorize those songs, singing them in middle school, I mean, it's just thrilling for someone like me as an historian to see that love of history really put into the hearts, really, of of a whole generation of young people, as well as old people. I mean, I've heard old people singing the songs, too. So, I mean, the book itself is a a really wonderful book, but the fact that they were able to make of this, this event that I think is one of those events that will really be remembered for a long time to come is really pretty terrific.
4: Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow Hamilton approached this daily routine with the same perfectionist ardor that he exhibited in his studies. Never one to fumble an opportunity, Hamilton embarked on a comprehensive military education. With his absorbent mind, he mastered infantry drills, pored over volumes on military tactics, and learned the rudiments of gunnery and pyrotechnics from a veteran bombardier. There was a particular doggedness about this young man, as if he were already in training for something far beyond lowly infantry duty.
5: The recent book after the 2016 election by J.D. Vance on hillbilly elegy really began to understand the underpinnings of a culture in crisis. You know, what a group of people who were of a certain class and were white, had a regional decline— and what it felt like for them to feel different from the rest of the country. It was part of what allowed, I mean, I think the Trump campaign to make its progress, as it did in those areas. And I think it's so important for all of us to understand those different points of view. Teddy Roosevelt once said that the rock of democracy would founder if people in different regions and parties and, and religions and races felt that the other people were the other, rather than a common American citizen. So I think it was just a, a wonderful spotlight into a world that many of us might not have known so directly as J.D. Vance did. And the characters came alive, and it had humor in it, so it made an impact, I think, as well in explaining us to ourselves.
4: Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. We're more socially isolated than ever, and we pass that isolation down to our children. Our religion has changed, built around churches heavy on emotional rhetoric, but light on the kind of social support necessary to enable poor kids to do well. Many of us have dropped out of the labor force or have chosen not to relocate for better opportunities. Our men suffer from a peculiar crisis of masculinity in which some of the very traits that our culture inculcates make it difficult to succeed in a changing world. There's a lack of agency here, a feeling that you have little control over your life and a willingness to blame everyone but yourself.
5: Well, from a little bit further back, I think David Kennedy's freedom from fear, which really taught us how America came through the two greatest crises, depression and war. It argued that leadership can make a difference. And at a time, I think, like ours right now, when we are in a situation where there's so much fear and there's so much anxiety, I mean, even the title itself I love, freedom from fear, you know, of course referring to FDR's first inaugural, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. But more than that, just showing how movement together... And I would argue even more, it's not just that leaders can make a difference, but the movements from the society have to connect to the leaders. You know, just as Lincoln was said to be a liberator, and he said, no, the anti-slavery movement did it all without a question. The progressive movement, which built up, which dawned really at the turn of the 20th century and lasted through both Roosevelt's, was so important in what was possible for the Square Deal and the New Deal and the civil rights movement for Lyndon Johnson. So I think we're at a moment now in our history right now where we need that leadership channeling the awakened citizenry to really correct the problems that we have today, which, which are pretty much in crisis. I think our political system needs reformation without a question. The lack of mobility in the country has caused many people to feel that the American dream is no longer working. The educational disparities, the income disparities, much like the turn of the 20th century, and, and to see a, a country go through the Great Depression and the Second World War and the citizenry be able to back up what the leaders were doing, I think it just gives us hope. That's what history can do, hope and solace and perspective.
3: Doris Kearns Goodwin. And coming up later in the show, we'll be getting more book recommendations from Nate Powell, graphic novelist and illustrator of Congressman John Lewis's March series.
0: But before that, Brian, if I remember, you got a little bit of ribbing from our backstory producers after our Summer Reads show, where you chose to recommend three books about bureaucracy.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry,
0: Nathan. Could you fill out that form
2: again? I don't quite understand
0: the gist of what you're saying. Well, uh, what, what, uh, what I'm saying is I am chomping at the bit, to use an Old West metaphor, to know what you're going to recommend today.
6: <laughs> Whoa.
0: Well, wait no longer. I actually decided
2: to tackle the really upbeat holiday theme of income inequality in the books um, that I'm recommending. Uh, I'm kidding about upbeat and I'm kidding about holiday, but I did look at works that, along the lines of ed, take different approaches to understanding income inequality across the 20th century. The first is called All God's Dangers, uh, and it's really a primary source. It is the oral history, but the, an oral interview with a sharecropper who was born in the late 19th century. His father actually lived under slavery. He's, of course, African-American. Uh, and it traces Nate Shaw's life in Alabama, as a poor sharecropper, as a man who was a key person in organizing the Alabama Sharecroppers Union to fight back against the inequality uh, that he and his neighbors were facing, a man who was jailed for 12 years, in essence, for organizing that resistance, and a man that I think it was a review in the New York Times uh, called uh, and. African American Homer. Uh, he is so
4: eloquent, even though uh, he was never educated. I met Nate Shaw in January 1969. He had just turned 84 years old. I had come to Tucubachee County with a friend who was investigating a defunct organization called the Alabama Sharecroppers Union. We had learned that a survivor was living near Potsdam, some 20 miles south of the county seat where we'd been sifting through trial dossiers and newspaper files in the courthouse basement. One icy morning, we set out to find him. We shook hands, and he announced that he was always glad to welcome his people. He knew why we had come by our appearance. Young, white, polite, frightened, northern. People who looked like us had worked on voter registration drives, marched in Selma and Montgomery rode those freedom buses across the Mason-Dixon line. He had seen us on television, and it didn't surprise him to see us now, because this was his movement, and he knew a lot about it. He had been active in it before we were born. Raising his right hand to God, he swore there was no get-back in him. He was standing where he stood in 32. This is seeing income inequality from the very bottom up.
2: This is seeing a man who was very aware that the deck was stacked against him everywhere he turned, yet he never gave up, and he had an incredibly spirited resistance uh, to the very difficult situations that he faced. While reading these three books, I was looking for income inequality, I found an engagement with familiarity and unfamiliarity. The story of Nate Shaw was completely unfamiliar to me. I would wager to say that I have never had one experience that this man had across a very long life. The second book I looked at was very familiar. It's Kim Phillips Finds book on the New York City fiscal crisis called hmm. Fear City. And yes, I chose it because... As because a, you
3: triggered that exactly. Crisis, <laughs> exactly.
2: I put the crisis in fiscal in New York City. <laughs> I, no, a, as a young whippersnapper, pretty much right out of college, I moved to New York City and worked... For here it comes, Nathan, you want bureaucracy. I work for the special (laughs) deputy controller of New York City, and the special deputy controller provided technical assistance to the Emergency Financial Control Board. (laughs) Uh, But I was very, very much at the heart of this. And of course, I saw it from the perspective from the Felix Roatons and the high-flying white men, elites all, who were genuinely trying to solve New York City's fiscal crisis. What Mm. Kim Phillips Fine does is use history to step back and look at the idea behind New York City, an idea that said, City government can actually help uplift the working class. Mm -hmm. It can provide free college educations to people at city college and then city university. My uncle got his college degree at CCNY City College, and there's no way he would have been able to afford to go to college were not for that. And Kim really captures that spirit, and she suggests that although the fiscal crisis was presented as an either-or situation of profligate spending or letting rational minds prevail, in fact, there really were alternatives. And she not only looks at the bankers and the politicians, she looks at the people who protested some of the draconian cutbacks. I think my favorite chapter was the story of a multi-year occupation of a fire station in Brooklyn, Wow. Because those people they weren't going to let the special deputy controller and financial control board shut that fire station down, and then the last book really takes us up to the present, more or less. It is called Dark Money. It's by Jane Mayer, the superb New Yorker reporter. Uh, it's an incredibly researched book about billionaire conservatives and the network. They built, which ended up creating, in essence, an alternative to the Republican Party. And if you want to understand why the Republican Party has, in essence, been taken over by far right wing advocates of lower taxes on the rich and no government regulation, in essence, if you want to understand not just Donald Trump, but where we are today. You really have to understand the 40-year effort by people like Charles and David Koch to use their billions in order to have a voice in politics and, Mayer argues, a disproportionate voice in politics. Mm
3: -hmm. So are you— Heartened? I mean, normally here in the holiday season, we look for reasons to be cheerful. Do you find any reasons in all this, Brian?
2: I'm totally depressed.
3: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And actually looking forward to the holidays.
1: Well, I wanted to say the titles of your book, Brian, Fear, Dark and Danger. Happy Holidays.
0: (laughs) That is awesome. But but I I will say I am reading Brian's titles very hopefully because in each of the stories that he recounted, you have people fighting back, whether it's through labor unions or occupying public space, or even a journalist who takes the painstaking approach of documenting how people take over our political system. Right, all of this. Have some more eggnog, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> What's in this thing? <laughs>
2: If you enjoy Backstory's book recommendations, you might want to join Bookstory, Backstory's online book club for people who love history as much as we do. It gives you the chance to discuss a different history book each month. Interested in joining the club? Visit
3: BackstoryRadio.org slash Bookstory. One of the most impressive new biographies of this year is David Blight's new book on the life of Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave who became one of the most famous abolitionists and leaders of the 19th century.
0: Unlike many radicals, Douglass lived to see his dream, the abolition of slavery, realized. But his was a long life. He lived into the era of Jim Crow and lynching, and in the last decades of his life, he struggled to cope with his fame, his family, and his finances.
3: I spoke to David Blyton and he told me he discovered a treasure trove of papers and letters held in a private collection, which helped him flesh out those last three decades of Frederick Douglass's life.
6: The reason I did it is the encounter I had with that private collection owned by Walter Evans in Savannah, Georgia, an extraordinary collection of Douglass manuscripts and particularly scrapbooks from his family. That opened up particularly the last third of Douglas's life.
3: Reading your book, I can also see how exhausting it would have been to have followed Douglas through all the twists and turns of every controversy, many of which were in his own head.
6: The first dilemma any biographer of this character faces is the autobiographies themselves. He wrote twelve hundred pages of sometimes very self-reflective autobiography full of tremendous storytelling and some of the greatest uh, passages and metaphors we have about the meaning of slavery. But in those 1,200 pages of three autobiographies, he says almost nothing about his private, uh, personal, domestic life, his family, his two marriages, and his very important relationships with his three sons and his daughter— that part of his life, you just have to keep pushing to find uh, by other means. Those became, in some ways, the biggest challenges and sometimes the most intriguing parts of chasing down Douglas. <laughs> you pointed
3: out how important Douglas's family was to him, even though you know uh, his first wife, he sort of kept hid or protected. Uh, And the second wife brought controversy as well as comfort to him. Can you kind of give us an overview of those two women and the roles they played in his life?
6: Sure. It's remarkable. Uh, His first wife was Anna Murray. He met her in Baltimore when he was a teenage slave. She was a free black woman, worked as a domestic servant, and she bravely followed him out of slavery Uh, up into New York and then into Massachusetts. They were married 44 years. There's one mention of her in 1,200 pages of autobiography, and she is called My Wife. And she almost never traveled with Douglas, partly because of raising the family and keeping the home fires burning, but also because she really didn't share his intellectual, professional worlds. So it was a difficult marriage. We have plenty of evidence of that, including recollections written in three remarkable memoirs by three of Douglas's children. She had a stroke in the summer of 1882 and died about a month later. She had been the center. There's no question of that family. And Douglas came apart, I'm convinced of that, for at least a few months in the wake of her death. But a year and a half later, he married a younger woman, 20 years younger, a white woman, a very educated woman, Mount Holyoke graduate, uh, named Helen Pitts. Grew up in an abolitionist family. She had serious anti-slavery credentials. But she came to Washington to work, which lots of Americans did and during Reconstruction. And when Douglas became recorder of deeds in the Garfield administration, She was hired. She worked there as a clerk, and she sat in the desk right next to Rosetta, Douglas's daughter. And on a day in February of 1884, a reporter walked into the office at 3 p.m. or so and said to Rosetta, did you realize your father just bought a marriage license down the hall here in City Hall? That marriage overnight became, without comparison, the most scandalous or controversial marriage of the 19th century. It was all over the press for months, and it did not sit well with his children. Rosetta was almost the same age.
3: Was it a scandal in both the black press and the white press?
6: It was indeed. He had black supporters. We should make no mistake about that, but a lot of the black press condemned him. I mean, there's one famous remark in a Midwestern newspaper of a guy who wrote in and said, Mr. Douglas, we had your picture on our living room wall. We've now put it out in the stable. You've disgraced the race. He knew that he had been probably, indeed, the product of sexual exploitation of his mother by one of his owners. He knew this was his own route. So the idea of racial mixture had never been any issue to Douglas as a problem. In fact, he wrote at great length about how America might one day become what he called a composite people or a composite nation in fact he left probably the most astute analysis of the concept of race of almost any american of the 19th century what did he say about it you read a bunch of the racial sciences you know the scientific racism of the time written by the, the great natural scientist of the ivy league universities And he came forth then with this speech that basically made a very modern argument about race, about how it is not a biological reality. He didn't use the word social construction, which is our academic way of talking about it today, but he said it's really an invention of our own minds. And he took on the racial sciences directly. Wow. He took this composite nation speech on the road in which he tried to imagine a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial America into the future, where race would diminish as a category. And uh, it's quite a document when you read it, because you, th- you think it might have come out of, uh, you know, some multicultural association on an American university campus.
3: <laughs> How did he handle being public? I mean, he loved it, <laughs> but it also must have been a burden as well.
6: Oh, it was a terrible burden, and he didn't always handle it well. He's got a problem of fame from the first three or four years that he went out on the circuit as an abolitionist, an itinerant abolitionist lecturer. But this issue of fame is going to dog him the rest of his life, the pleasures of it and the perils of it. I developed that more later in the book because after the Civil War, when he moves to Washington in 1872, and he really strives to become a kind of political insider after having been this radical outsider. And when you get to the 1870s and 1880s, his, in black leadership, his rivals are all the, a generation younger, and they'd all graduated from college, and they had not been slaves. And here's this aging man who's a former slave with no education, who everyone says is the greatest black voice on planet Earth. And to younger rivals, they do what all generations do. They tried to knock him off. And it becomes a a real, it becomes a fascinating story of competition and contest, which is very modern. I mean, this goes on generation after generation. But it was rooted in that issue of fame. And one of the things I learned new and uh, in poignant ways is that Douglas did not like being knocked off the pedestal. He liked being number one. And he often threw the mud back at his rivals more than they threw it at him.
3: Well, that reminds me that it sometimes seems that America has reinvented Martin Luther King Jr. as sort of a person good for any occasion. And a a lot of his own radicalism and bravery has sort of been drained out in favor of being a dreamer. Frederick Douglass seems harder to domesticate, but how do you see him being sort of deployed in current-day America?
6: That's a great question, Ed, because that is happening. It's not quite to the extent of Abraham Lincoln or perhaps even of King, but many different political persuasions today want to get Douglass on their side, and you can go into Douglass's writings you know, into the millions of words. And you can find passages that, that you can just pull out and say, you see, he would have supported this. And the tendency has been in recent times, especially for the American right, have adopted Douglas, but they've appropriated Douglas's great aspiration for black self-reliance. He preached it before slavery ended, and he especially preached it after slavery ended, but every black leader in the 19th century preached a variety of self-reliance to their fellow blacks. The society that would enslave you and then take all of your liberties and rights away and then uh, perhaps even chase you and terrorize you and lynch you and eventually write Jim Crow laws to declare you out of the polity, you know, what else can you do? And to do that and say that that's his principal legacy, the self-made man image, is to ignore about 90% of his life and his thought. On the other hand, the further left you go, Douglas is sometimes not used that much. Really? What Douglass also became, and he's a real prototype for this, is that radical outsider who learned a kind of political pragmatism in order to get at least a few toes inside of power. And he became a kind of political insider who made his compromises after the war. But let's imagine Martin Luther King had lived for many more decades and become a real political insider of some sort, possibly even running for major office. We'd be talking about him very differently. I mean, he's born in 1818, Heavens before steamboats, before the railroad, before the telegraph, before the rotary press. But he's going to live all the way to 1895 when when there were electric light bulbs and phonographs and so forth. And in the middle of his life, he experiences this triumph of his cause. And not, not many radical activists actually see that. But then he also lives long enough to see those very triumphs all but erased, destroyed and betrayed. And so he's going to have to assess or explain and interpret all of those changes within that vast trajectory and for him to have been consistent would be ridiculous. He's the embodiment of many kinds of contradictions which is part of what makes him interesting.
3: And part of what makes your book so interesting too David. Thank you
6: so very much. I could talk for hours about this and Thanks for joining us here. You got it. Okay, Ed. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. I was talking to David Blight,
3: an old friend of Backstory, and his new book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. It's out now.
0: Now, Joanne, I hear a distant drum roll. Or is that thunder over the mountains? <laughs> what are your new recommendations?
1: That's a little daunting as an introduction there, <laughs> Nathan. <laughs> okay. I didn't seek a theme when I thought of these three books. I actually just honestly said in my gut, what are three books that I want to recommend? I'm going to circle back at the end to the theme because it, it struck me after I picked them all. There's a solid reason. I think they all have in common. So the first book I want to recommend is Never Caught, Ona Judge, The Washingtons, and the Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, and it's by Erica Armstrong Dunbar. That's a book that does A couple of things all at the same time, which isn't necessarily all that common. It's a story that's extremely readable. And it's also a work of academic heft Mm -hmm. that tells the story of Ona Judge, who is an enslaved person of the Washington family, George Washington. And when he became president and moved to the nation's capital, first New York and then Philadelphia, she was one of nine enslaved people that he took with him. And in Philadelphia, there was a law that after six months, an enslaved person would be freed if they were in Philadelphia for more than that time, for longer than six months. So Washington, and Dunbar shows this really effectively, very carefully circulated his slaves in and out of Philadelphia to avoid the six-month
7: law. Surrounded by anti-slavery sentiment and laws that undermine their financial investments, The Washingtons knew they had to work quickly and quietly if they were to protect their wealth and their reputation. The president needed a solution to the problem of slaveholding in Philadelphia, one that would work for many years. So the Washingtons devised a plan. The couple would shuffle their slaves to and from Mount Vernon every six months, avoiding the stopwatch of Pennsylvania black freedom. If an excursion to Virginia proved a hardship for the family, a quick trip to a neighboring state such as New Jersey would serve the same purpose. The hourglass of slavery would be turned over every six months, and the president knew there was no time to waste. The book details how Ona
1: Judge worked her way towards freedom. The book is called Never Caught because, as Dunbar says in the book, she isn't caught but she's never entirely free either. Mm. So what it does remarkably is it talks about slavery. It talks about the meaning of freedom to an enslaved person. It gets at the details of slavery in this period. It shows you Washington as an elite slaveholder, not thinking about slavery in an abstract way, but dealing with it on the ground. And it manages to do all of that while letting you look through the eyes of Ona Judge, partly based on some uh, accounts she gave of her escape later in her life. So that's a that's a juggling act, and it's an impressive book, and it's just also a, a really it, – it'll grab you as a read.
2: Fantastic. Yeah. And, Joanne, I'm going to home in on uh, a word that struck terror into my heart, academic heft.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you know,
2: this sounds incredibly compelling and readable. Where does the academic heft come in?
1: Because of everything you learn from it that's, that's big and small. It, mm. it, it tells you about broad themes in American history in a way that we certainly try to do in our teaching and in our writing. But you're right. It does it in this very compelling, readable package. So I did not mean to make it sound less compelling All right, by you've saying, convinced
3: me. All right. You've convinced <laughs> or, me. Thank you. Or too heavy to carry from the bookstore either. <laughs>
1: it's a, anyway, I didn't mean to detract from it. I loved it. So the second thing I want to recommend, and here I'm I'm sort of taking after Ed in that I didn't quite follow the assignment, but I,
0: I did, for good reason, yes. for good reason. You guys have to go to the gifted <laughs> class, for the record.
1: <laughs> so uh, this is a novel by Wallace Stegner mm. called Angle of Repose. And it, it's an older book. It was published in 1971. It won the Pulitzer Prize in fiction. The reason I feel that I can get away with recommending it is it's a book about a historian telling the history of his grandparents. Hmm. So it's a double story. And it's it's a really a remarkable tale of the modern day historian sort of grappling with the present and his past through his reconstruction of history. And then he really successfully brings you back to what ultimately ends up being the Old West as his grandparents travel out there. His grandmother was an artist and an author who lived in New York, her husband was an engineer who ends up going out West and bringing his wife with him. And so the book tells you about the West through the eyes of these two people, one of whom certainly at the beginning isn't really sure she wants to be there. It it mines the letters of real people, so it's grounded in actual historical artifacts, but it so effectively tells these two stories about history in two different ways. And again, it's so readable. It's one of those books, I remember when I first read it, it's one of those books where if you're sitting outside reading it, someone walks by and says, oh, I love that book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of
3: those books. And you know, um, it sounds it, as if it might be a great companion to Red Dead Redemption. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if the video came out yet.
1: You know, <laughs> yeah. I thought about that and then I didn't say it. So thank you for saying that, Ed. <laughs>
3: Please know here on Backstory, you heard it first. Wallace Stegner and the video game.
1: I'll I'll just say one last thing Um, the the narrator in the book says he wants to live in the clothes of his ancestors for a while and I love that phrase Mm, and that's 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 kind of what he does in the book okay so the third book you guys are going to have to humor me the third book that I want to recommend is my book
2: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I've read it it's great it's a great book (laughs) it has academic (laughs) heft besides being readable
1: compelling with academic heft I can apply that (laughs) to my own book
2: Um,
1: I, I, I debated about suggesting it, and then in the end I did. And the reason I did is this circles back to the theme I mentioned at the beginning. What I realized all three of these books have at their core is they're all telling a really big story through the eyes of one person Mm. and thus also telling a small story that reveals so much in the course of unfolding. So whether it's this historian reconstructing his ancestor's life, or whether it's Ona Judge, or in the case of my book, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress, and the Road to Civil War, whether it's through this clerk who I put at the center of the book and who's in Congress in one way or another for decades and and witnesses the violence in Congress and you experience that partly through his eyes, in one way or another, all of these books are dealing with big themes, you know, the road to civil war, slavery and freedom, the the, the myth of the Old West, but they're doing it through the eyes of one person in a way that I think is really compelling and, and that makes that sort of book typically a, a
2: really good read in addition to having a larger message. Just to give our listeners a sense for the little and the big, this is a guy who decides finally because he works in Congress, he needs to buy a gun, he needs to pack. Uh, And he talks about that in the same letter, as I recall, that he talks about underwear (laughs) (laughs) shop.
1: And there you have my favorite quote from the book, yes. Um, And that's the story that led me to plant him as kind of the spine of the book. He starts out the book, his name is Benjamin Brown French. He's a clerk from New Hampshire. He's not a famous person in any way. He has a great diary. And at the beginning of his time in Washington, he arrives as what would have been called a doe faced Democrat, meaning he would do anything to appease the South. And that's all he's about, save the Union, promote his party, and appease the South on everything, including slavery. By the end of the book, he goes out to buy a gun in case he needs to shoot Southerners. And I wanted to tell the story. In the book, I call it the emotional logic of disunion, Mm. How do you get from point A to point B? Right. How, how right. do you travel that road? And so French lets me do that in a in a ground level way that I
3: would not have anticipated I could do. That's awesome. Seems like a good recommendation to me, Joanne. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, guys. I think I'll go out and buy a third copy now that I
0: <laughs> You only have three. Yeah. Ed <laughs> As a 23-year-old, John Lewis addressed the crowds at the Lincoln Monument on the same day as Martin Luther King in his famous I Have a Dream speech. He's the last of the speakers that day who is still alive. Nate Powell is the illustrator of a graphic novel about Lewis's career called March. We asked him for his book recommendations. Well, I'd say my first recommendation would probably be a
8: short comics collection called Your Black Friend and Other Strangers by my friend Ben Passmore. And he, like me, tells a lot of fiction and fantastic narratives, but also takes time to put in a lot of sort of memoir and essay-related sort of topical comics that are nonfiction. There isn't a word in this book that is not relevant and topical and pressing, but it's told in a way with vibrant, fantastic artwork, which really allows it to retain a sense of humor, a sense of self-awareness and sort of commands the engagement and the listening ear of a reader. I'd recommend The Best We Could Do by T-Boy. It's the graphic memoir of her life, but her journeying backwards through her family's history, being a person who arrived from Vietnam to the United States at a very early age, This is largely the story of the previous three generations of her family as people in Vietnam moving from and through their nation's identity as part of an empire, moving towards independence, moving through the Vietnam War— moving through the collapse of the Vietnam War. So it's a tale of becoming. It's a tale of her mapping many of the contradictory reflections, memories, and emotional responses of various members of her family in the context of their need to survive.
7: The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie Was this the same general in that famous Saigon execution photo? Does he hate the general, or is he defending him? Did he like communism or not? The contradictions in my father's stories troubled me for a long time, but so did the oversimplifications and stereotypes in American versions of the Vietnam War. I was surprised to learn that Eddie Adams, the American photographer who won the Pulitzer Prize in 1969 for that famous picture, didn't think he deserved it. Like my father, He knew the context of the shooting and that it was absent from the photograph itself. Regretting the damage that his photograph did to the general, Adams located him many years later in America. The former general, like my parents and so many immigrants, was in a state of fallen grace, working behind the counter in a pizzeria in Virginia.
8: I'd say, as it relates to worldly intersections in nonfiction, my all-time favorite would be the two shorter essay collections by the beloved Joan Didion, so Slouching Toward Bethlehem and The White Album, which largely both collect essays from the 1960s, and I consider them kind of indistinguishable sister volumes to each other. I mean, Joan Didion's prose is just perfection. The restraint on any kind of sentimentality is so strong and just sorrow, anxiety, loss is present in the essay Slouching Toward Bethlehem, like the chilling end of that essay where she goes into this sort of alternative living warehouse situation where there's like this three or four-year-old kid on acid, you know, around like an open flame or whatever. There's just like really bizarre stuff happening and her ability to capture it without sentimentality injects it with so much more emotion and so much more of the thing she is writing around in terms of of emotional weight and response. Because of that, because of her economy and her judgment with her word choices, her judgment with prose, I'd say that that, even though our styles are not similar, that has left a very deep mark on the way that I choose to write.
7: Slouching Towards Bethlehem by Joan Didion At some point... Between 1945 and 1967, we had somehow neglected to tell these children the rules of the game we happened to be playing. Maybe we had stopped believing in the rules ourselves. Maybe we were having a failure of nerve about the game. Or maybe there were just too few people around to do the telling. These were children who grew up cut loose from the web of cousins and great-aunts and family doctors and lifelong neighbors who had traditionally suggested and enforced the society's values. They are children who have moved around a lot. San Jose, Chula Vista, here, they are less in rebellion against the society than ignorant of it, able only to feed back certain of its most publicized self-doubts.
1: Okay, Nathan, so it's your turn, and you have to give us your recommendations so that folks can run out to the bookstores before they close for Christmas.
0: All right, all right. So
1: tell us what you recommend.
0: (laughs) So I have three books, and quite unintentionally, it actually reflects the old backstory structure of 20th, 19th, and 18th century. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. You did that up there. Yeah. I love the show. What can I say? I love the show. Um, so the the first is a book that just came out and I taught for the first time this fall um, by Brian Simon, a historian at Temple University, called The Hamlet Fire, A Tragic Story of Cheap Food, Cheap Government, and Cheap Lives. And let me just tell you, this is an incredible account of a fire in Hamlet, North Carolina, a small town about 45 minutes from the nearest expressway. And in 1991, September 3rd to be exact, there's a terrible fire at a chicken processing plant in which 25 workers are killed and 55 are injured. What, what Brian Simon does with this book is really incredible because he takes this moment of industrial tragedy And not only connects it to the long history of industry and workers' rights, but also really does tell the story of the modern South, again, through a very small place and an amazing detail. So it's the emergence of cheap foods like chicken tenders and how they affect the body through Hmm. the constant eating of this for people who are poor. It's about the depressing of wages over the last 30 years. Um, It's about the regulations that are not enforced through the 1970s and 80s and 90s that allow a chicken processing plant to erupt in flames. And it's also about the managers of this plant who lock the doors in ways to keep Mm. workers from basically being able to leave the plant when it does catch a fire, right? So their efforts to -to day-to-day control worker movement obviously leads to other problems when the hazards really do get realized with the fire. So it's, it's one of these stories that, again, moves at these extraordinarily different levels between the body itself, between the experience of individual workers, between the existence or lack of existence of worker rights and unions in the modern South of the late 20th century. Um, and it's also a story that is really a story of America because so many of us now are encouraged, even in spite of knowing where it comes from, to look for things that are quote-unquote cheap, right? So affordability as the way in which we're supposed to think about that which is best, is part of what Simon basically captures in this extraordinarily small and really intimate depiction.
4: Bryant Simon, The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. New Press, 2017. Cheap relies on one other essential factor, a carefully constructed cover-up. In 1991, three golden-fried chicken fillets made at Imperial Food Products, along with an order of fries, cost $1.99 at Shoney's. This price, however, hid the real costs of the social system that allowed a company like Shoney's to charge so little for heaping plates of calorie-dense foods. Covered up were the costs incurred in farm subsidies, and the piles of debt taken on by the chicken growers, some of whom had been turned into modern-day serfs. The price didn't include the cost of food stamps for the underpaid, road building for transport, the cleanup of waterways polluted by animal factories, or the healthcare outlays needed in order to address the myriad issues linked to obesity and the litany of other ills associated with chronic overexposure to sugary, salty, and fatty foods. At the same time, the system of cheap never paid a dime for the wanton cruelty it imposed on animals or the injuries suffered by workers while killing, processing, and further processing industrially produced chickens.
2: Yeah, Nathan, I, I, I would call it the political economy of cheap.
0: I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and the thing with Simon that's incredible is that he takes this town that used to be a really important epicenter of 19th century industrial rail economy and then really moves it through and sees how the expansion of highways or the development of suburbs and the way America grew, sometimes in unintentional ways, still had very real consequences. So much so, in fact, that your best chances were really about luck. So he has this amazing mm-hmm. introduction where he talks about different workers who are luckier than their counterparts who maybe didn't make it out of the fire or didn't get you know, uh, a, a settlement from the company or didn't get something else that they hope to have as a future by living and working around this plant. That's very powerful. What else you have? So the second book, which moves way back into Joanne's period, into the 18th century and the colonial era, is a book that a lot of people have been waiting for for an extraordinarily long time. It's a book by a historian named Julius Scott, and it's called The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution. Now, Scott wrote a dissertation in 1986 that became a sensation. He has, by many accounts, the most widely cited dissertation of any history dissertation ever (laughs) written, right? And what Scott did was find a way to capture all of the currents of communication, all the flows of workers and sailors and of slaves through the Atlantic world that allowed the Haitian Revolution to become a global event. So what we Mm. now know As the making of the first Black Republic in the modern world happened in part, obviously, through the efforts of slaves on the ground in a place called Saint-Domingue, now Haiti. But it also took fire in the messages, the gossip, Hmm. the whispers below decks. It's an extraordinary reconstruction of this elaborate network of working people, of slave masters and of slaves in the waterfronts of, really, the Atlantic world. So it's Kingston, Jamaica, Santiago, Cuba, Philadelphia. He does research in England. And again, he did this as a graduate student. And I just want to emphasize.
1: And I have a question regarding that. So what led, it sounds like it certainly should have been published before now. So what led to its appearance now?
0: There are a couple of things, in fact. Julius Scott struggled and has continued to struggle with health. I mean, he has an Mm -hmm. extraordinary health condition, and he has been able to soldier through and do his teaching in spite of struggling with diabetes, effectively, for a very long time. And so, unlike many of us who have the benefit of just being able to kind of bear down and focus on, you know, our work and getting it converted from a dissertation into a book, he had a lot of stops and starts. But the reality was Julius's influence was so substantial that many of his former students basically led a movement, and I happen to be— (laughs) at a dinner when one of his graduate students, James Dater, was basically closing the deal to get Julius's book finally published this year by Verso. Oh, I love that. And and what's, again, incredible about it is it's not just the graduate students and, you know, his friends circling around him to get this thing out, but it's an incredibly readable thing. Again, saying dissertation Mm. may cause one to want to put it (laughs) down, but let me just tell you, the very first thing that you get when you read this book is a story that's totally engrossing about French troops getting on a boat to leave France that just experienced the French Revolution, and they're wearing banners, and they're wearing sashes that say, live free or die. Hmm. And they're getting on this boat to go suppress the slave revolt in Haiti. And so wow. the, co- the commanding officer says, you have to cover all of these references to live free or die because <laughs> the slaves are going to get the wrong idea about Bad what we're there for. Bad message. Bad <laughs> message.
3: But it was wow. so far ahead of its time, too. He really anticipated yes. what we've been sort of discovering over right. the last quarter of a century. So,
0: Absolutely. So Absolutely. it's a
3: really encouraging story. Wow.
0: The third title is also set in the Caribbean, or at least it ends there. And it's written by Martha Hodes. And the book is called The Sea Captain's Wife, A True Story of Love, Race, and War in the 19th Century. And it came out with Norton over 10 years ago, 2007. But this is a book that just keeps on giving. I I probably read it, you know, once every other year. And it's remarkable in both its scale and scope and, again, in its intimacy. Codes finds, effectively, a box of letters at an archive at Duke University of 500 letters written by a woman and to and from her family members, a woman named Eunice Stone. And she's working as a washerwoman in Massachusetts in the antebellum period. And right off the top, you get a sense of the extraordinary skill it takes to be able to read letters closely and especially understanding that letters in the 19th century are so valuable and paper is actually so valuable that many times people are reusing paper they're being very careful with how they're phrasing things but also sometimes writing with between the lines on one letter to send it back to a Mm -hmm. family member right she does all of this
1: (laughs) tell me about it
0: (laughs) (laughs) right this this is a world joanne you know quite quite well So Eunice Stone is part of a family that effectively splits during the middle of the 19th century, during the Civil War. So Ed and all you Civil War aficionados out there will find something in this totally uh, familiar with what you know in terms of families being split over this conflict. And so Eunice Stone travels to Mobile, Alabama, which is a part of the Caribbean as well. So it's a transnational city. And somewhere between Massachusetts and Mobile, she meets a sea captain. So she ends up splitting from her current husband— and runs off with a captain from the Cayman Islands. This is the kicker for me. The captain's name is William Smiley Connolly. That hey. is <laughs> That sea captain is my great 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 grandfather. Wow. Oh my gosh.
1: I was going to make a joke and then I wow, that's that is actually Quite amazing, Nathan. Yeah.
0: So Martha, whose work on interracial love was part of her earlier work, stumbles across these papers and in this, you know, second book finds a way to connect this woman who marries a Caribbean sea captain and lives the remainder of her days in the Caribbean as effectively a woman of color. So she goes from being a white woman to being an upwardly mobile, um, affluent effectively, woman of color in the Caribbean being married to a black sea captain. And so the household that she lives in is goes from being impoverished to being quite affluent. And she eventually gets on a ship in the 1870s and she and her husband both in a massive hurricane end up being killed in a shipwreck. And so it has all of these epic components of 19th century life um, in terms of the poverty, in terms of the war, in terms of ships and shipwrecks. And eventually, you know, it winds up in the Cayman Islands where— William Smiley Connolly's son and then grandson and then great-grandson basically are my forebears. And so it's a family book that has all kinds of extraordinary connections. Um, and I, hmm. I do teach it, not just because it's a family <laughs> story, but it really is one of the most immersive experiences as reading history hmm. goes that I've seen.
3: Well, that seems pretty compelling. You know, it's just like I have a lot of reading to do.
0: Uh, yeah. All these and game playing. <laughs> well, there's that me. too,
3: Yeah.
2: That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger.
1: Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment.
2: Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia
5: Humanities.